Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hi, this is Greg Logan, Managing Director at RCLCO. If you're a listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking tactical and strategic advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to our latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Jim Zaboral, president of Tavistock Development Company. During his nearly 15 years at the helm, Jim has led the evolution of Tavistock from landowner to a full-service, integrated, multi-use real estate development, construction, and management firm. He oversees all company operations, including management of Tavistock's flagship project, Lake Nona, a 17-square-mile master plan community in Orlando, Florida, ranked among the top-selling communities in America. Lake Nona features a variety of neighborhoods, world-class education, recreational facilities, a health and life sciences cluster, sports and performance district, diverse workspaces, and retail centers, all built on a gigabit network. It's a real estate project that's often been case studied by other development organizations around the country due to its innovative approaches to placemaking and value creation. Jim, thanks so much for taking time to be part of our podcast series. Thank you, Greg. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Me too. Before we get started, I understand that you're uh, becoming an empty nester this fall, that your son is heading <laughs> off to the University of Michigan. He is. He is. We have a uh, long line of Wolverines in my family. Not I. I couldn't get in there. I went to uh, Western Michigan University, but my wife went there. My dad went there. My mom went there. Her dad went there. Her sister went there. So it's been quite a uh, tradition, I guess, if you will, for our family. So my son's starting that. And so my wife and I have a have a new chapter in our lives and, and looking forward to it. Very cool. Did you give him any advice about how to pick a major? I did give him some advice, which is to not stress out about it. My father was a dentist. He was like, I don't know if you remember that. I think it was like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or something like that. There was a kid in there that was this dentist. Oh, yeah, right. Right. He wanted to be a dentist. You know, so my dad, like when he was like in junior high, wanted to be a dentist. So he wants to be a dentist. He goes to med school. He becomes a dentist. He practiced dentistry for 40 years, retires, and has a happy life. And so when I was a kid, my dad was always like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? What are you going to do? What are you going to be? What's your major? And it stressed me out because I really didn't know. And so I didn't want to do that to my son. My son thinks that he is interested in engineering. He's a good student. But I told him, you know, just go and date a few subjects and figure it out. And fortunately, he's a good student. So he's entering with some credits where, you know, he's passed out of some of the initial classes and whatnot. So anyway, so mm -hmm. he, he'll be able to take some different classes and figure it out. And I think, you know, there's a lot of kids out there that are forced to declare things early. And, you know, I think you got to kind of plan life in five years segment, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and you know, like or, good advice. I mean, shorter terms than fi figure out the rest of your life. Right. You don't want to graduate as a lawyer and then find out, you know what? I really hate law. <laughs> right. 
Right. It's so important that we're happy in whatever it is that we do. And, you know, it's hard to operate at a high level if you're doing something you don't really just love in your core, you know? Right. I mean, that's good advice. And, you know, I've known you for a long time, both as a client and as a friend. And among the things that I admire about you is the energy and the passion that I see you bring to everything you do. You always seem to be on the go and you you seem somewhat tireless in your work. You're very committed to doing things in the best way. And, and you really seem to enjoy what you're doing. Yes, absolutely. Real estate and real estate development is kind of one of those careers where I feel that there's a lot of people in a lot of different positions that think they know how to do what we do. And, you know, I would never walk into my cardiac surgeon's, you know, office (laughs) and say, hey, step aside. But I know my cardiac surgeon wants to tell me a little bit about how to do my real estate business better. (laughs) Right. Um, Especially if he he wants to be an investor, right? (laughs) Yeah. 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 So it's kind of funny that our business gets a little bit of that. But I've always enjoyed building things and trying to figure out how things work. And I think that originally got me into being involved in as I was an auto mechanic in high school and I started a framing company in college and I kind of always enjoyed building things, but I also enjoy the scale that, you know, master plan community development gives us to do so many things mm-hmm. that I just kept trying to be involved in larger and larger projects and through that have a greater and greater impact on things. And so I've done a lot of different projects. I think the ones that have brought me the greatest satisfaction is when I see them being enjoyed by other people. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes it can be very little projects, but people get a big joy out of it and it touches you. And so oftentimes I used to think all the time that, hey, it's about the, oh, we're building these great buildings and all that. And, And yes, it's important that we have a good design and we build a great building and all that. But so much of it is about the programming that goes on and the experience that people have in those places. And I think that's what that is what can really motivate you. And one of the things we do is we do some public art. And one of the pieces that we purchased this acrylic house that is interesting, sort of like shed with multicolor acrylic panels on it and that that we put in a prominent spot in our Laureate Park community you know, that was a cool thing and it's a cool piece of art and all that. But what's really awesome is when people send me pictures of like weddings and stuff in front of it. Somebody is taking that day, their wedding day and standing in front of something that we put together and celebrating that sort of special moment. And that's pretty powerful. Well, let me ask you this. So you've got close to 30 years of experience in real estate. And I know a little bit about your career and, you know, it kind of spans the real estate spectrum. And you mentioned that early on you liked building and kind of started off with cars. How did that evolve into real estate and how did that lead to you, you know, being a leader at Tavistock? <laughs> being that it's 30 years, there's a lot of trials and tribulations and story mm-hmm. and chapters to that story. But I would say growing up, I struggled with what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I went in college and I went in as biology And then I transferred to psychology and then I transferred to computer systems engineering and then I transferred to economics and then I transferred to accounting and then I transferred to finance. And each time I picked up a whole bunch of credits and all. And I ended up going in as a freshman. I went straight through summer and spring schedule. And so I graduated with all these credits because I was trying to, like I said, figure out what I was going to do the rest of my life. And I wasn't sure. And so I kind of was interested in options trading and I became pretty 
interested in the options market in Chicago and was going to go to the Chicago options market. And I graduated in 1987 and going into the fall semester of 1987, I was like president of the finance club and I was talking to all these guys and I felt really good about my future. Then we had this little thing called Black Monday, which was in October, I think, of 87 and all the financial markets cratered and the options jobs that I had lined up all went away. And so now I'm going into December when I graduated with nothing. And so I went into banking. I went into work for Comerica Bank and I felt like Banking was a really interesting job because they were going to put me in a credit training program and they were going to let me see a bunch of different companies. And the thing about banking that's also cool is people want to borrow money. So they, they're really nice to you and they show you all their financials and all that. And so I spent a lot of time looking at different companies and being in different things. And I got into a real estate lending position and started lending on some real estate and started kind of getting very interested in that and combining the financial aspects of real estate from an underwriting, lending, whatever perspective with the construction parts of real estate, because I always had an interest in that and ultimately became a developer ended up leaving the bank and going to work for a development company and starting kind of in their finance department and rotated out of that into actually doing entitlements and designing buildings. And before joining Tavistock, I worked for a public company, which was kind of one of those lessons learned and maybe big mistakes. I thought public companies were safe. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought that you know, you work for a public company, they have a board of directors, you know, they have stock, you know, they, it's out in the public, you know, all these things. What could go wrong, right? What could go wrong, right? <laughs> and actually, what I found is that you're kind of not in control of your own destiny, right? Because other things that don't have anything to do with your activity, meaning my activity, working for this company, being a development person in a company that was owned by a bank and had a home builder and had all these things, Something else, other than even the thing I'm in, can take you down. And people other than you make decisions that might be for different reasons. So the lesson learned is that sometimes, you know, the things that you perceive are safe aren't, and the things that you perceive that are risky maybe aren't. I mean, you know, if you're in control of your destiny, that might be less risky than putting your destiny in the control of others. So how did you get end up Tavistock? How did that evolve Tavistock find you? Did you find Tavistock? How did that work out? A little bit of both. I was working for another company. I had an interest in what Tavistock was doing in this project called North Lake Park Elementary School in the section of Lake Nona that's a little bit north of the Lake Nona Gulf Country Club. There's a community called North Lake Park in that Tavistock built a elementary school combined with a YMCA into one building. And they had this shared facilities in this building where the Y benefited from all the school classrooms and that, and the school benefited from the Y facilities like a gymnasium and pool and some of these things. And so I thought, man, what a great model, a community school, you know, you get this cross utilization. And so I was studying that model and I met some of the guys at Tavistock and I took got an interest in what they were doing there and started and met them. And then a couple of years later, I tried to buy Lake Nona for the company that I was with at the time, and they sold it to somebody else to outbid us and, and whatever. And then we went our separate ways and a couple of years passed and it ended up the guy who outbid us didn't close. And they came to me and said, hey, you know, we really like dealing with you. And we're now deciding that we're not going to sell this asset. We think it's a great long-term investment and it'd be very hard to replace. And would you be interested in coming and running it. And that was about 15 years ago. Very cool. Well, like Nona has become a very successful 
large scale master plan community. You've got multiple residential villages there, a town center. You've also been able to attract very significant companies and institutions to locate there. You've really created a significant job center there. You've got several hospitals, the medical school, uh, U.S. Tennis Association. KPMG is completing their, I think it's 800,000 square foot learning and development center there. How have you been so successful in landing so many big, what I'd call catalysts to the community? You get these big institutions and companies you know, wanting to be there. I'm sure there's a lot of other master plan communities out there you know, trying to get a job center going that would be envious. And just to get one of those things would be a real win. And you've been successful in landing multiple and continue to do that. How have you been so successful at landing so many of these big players to your community? I wish I could tell you there's one thing. I think there's one major thing, and that is that we're owned by a gentleman by the name of Joe Lewis, who's a self-made billionaire and a long-term investor and a brilliant thinker. So if I had to say one thing, it's that you know we're owned by a guy who is happy to look at things in different ways and invest in the long term. I think in addition to that, you know, I think we've been fortunate that on one side, we've focused on, you know, really the fundamentals, which I mentioned the school. Early on, we identified that education was clearly important towards building a long-term, sustainable, high-value master plan community. And so there was a deliberate focus on education. There's two elementary schools on site now. We're getting ready to do a third one. There's one high school. We're getting ready to do another one. There's a junior high. We have Valencia College here. We have UCF here. We have University of Florida here. So there is a deliberate strategy on education as being a critical component and having an educational master plan. Mm -hmm. So that was one part. And then we felt like jobs were important and that we figured out how to create a set of conditions for jobs. And so, you know, the housing that we offered and of course the education system, but UCF was kind of a transformational pivot, if you will, from education to jobs. And I mentioned earlier that, well, my family has graduated from University of Michigan and I was actually born there. And, you know, I saw the transformational effect of the university on the economy in, in mm -hmm. Ann Arbor. University of Michigan is a major machine. Their medical enterprise is a major contributor to the economy there. And they bridge that sort of education job piece. And so we saw an opportunity in UCF to do that and to bring, you know, not only a great educational partner, but also somebody that's going to produce jobs in healthcare and other related biotech mm -hmm. and other related industries. And so we went after that aggressively. And that was kind of the seed. But with Joe, Mr. Lewis, we were able to put capital out there and to be able to attract UCF to come and be one of those sparks. And that's where I think that we've been sort of non-traditional in the way that we look at investment. We're here to make money, of course, but we can evaluate that in some different metrics than my former company that looked, you know, solely at earnings per share per quarter. You know, we're able yeah. to look at what's our net asset value increase. You know, what are some other metrics that we're looking at to build value over time? And I think that's been unique and we're very tenacious. So I think being able to customize solutions, not be in a box, be long-term, be very tenacious and create an environment that's really an easy landing place for these companies and these people is kind of what we, we are able to put together. And we've been successful in transitioning this property over time too, 
from what was originally the medical city into sports and into human performance. And now it's kind of part of a bigger story, which we're, you know, really excited about as we move into even some of the hospitality functions that come out of some of these travelers that we're now obtaining here. I mean, back a few years ago, you know, we really didn't focus on tourism at all. And we always sort of thought, well, geez, you know, we're some guys out by the airport trying to build a great community around, you know, primary residential. And oh, by the way, we have some people that are really darn good at tourism in Orlando. So we we're good with just doing our own thing sort of out by the airport. But we were able right. to develop some different types of tourism. So, you know, the USTA is sports tourism, and that's different than kind of what some of our guys, you know, at Disney and Universal and some of these other places are doing very successfully. You know, we kind of created a little niche there. And same with KPMG. I mean, this is, you know, training and professional development, which is obviously a form of tourism, but it's different than, you know, what a lot of the tourism that Orlando has been built on. And so it's allowed us to now kind of move into this other area, being by the airport, having this great airport, having this ecosystem, if you will, of this place of like, no, no, this master plan, and now bring in some of these other things. And so our future right now, some of the interesting projects that I'm working on are really focused around creating more of this environment that, you know, drives experiences. And so whether it be your experience in coming to our new hotels and what your experience is as, you know, one of these, again, tourist sports or training, or you're in one of my apartments or in one of our residential and you're a resident here, or you're an employee and your job is here, you know, we're really trying to create experiences for those groups and to continue to drive that here at Lake Nona because we believe that drives premiums to us and to those people. So although your primary businesses are land development and building, you're really not just creating spaces or buildings, you're really engaged in placemaking or creating a place that people and businesses want to be. For sure. For me, that's the holy grail, I guess, if you will, of this place, which mm-hmm. is that some of these things we're building really just become the avenues for people to experience what it's all about, right? And since we're a long-term owner, we're not really looking to sell. So now it's kind of more about soliciting people to come to Lake Nona and hopefully they never want to leave. You know, they come as an employee and maybe they stay at our hotel, maybe they rent an apartment, then they buy a house. I mean, we have multiple people that have bought and sold homes here, not necessarily as, quote, speculators, but more like because their lifestyle changes. You know, they buy their first house, they have some kids, they buy a bigger house, and then the kids go away, they buy a smaller house, whatever. Maybe they come, you know, from the apartments, and then they build the house. And so, Anyways, the idea being that you come and you experience this whole place, whatever your avenue is, and it's more about the place and the experience than the physical product. We hope we continue to deliver superior physical products, but really, you know, my sticks and bricks aren't that much different than other people's sticks and bricks. So it's got to be about the experience. And it's the overall environment that you're creating and the experience that people have in that environment that makes them want to be there. Right. And I oftentimes say, you know, when I think about what was my best experience or what are some of my favorite experiences, even me as a real estate geek that loves building buildings, I don't usually think, I don't say, boy, that best experience, that building was so cool. Usually it's about who was I with? What were we doing? What was the celebration around? And oh, by the way, there might have been a building, but it might have been cool, but that's not usually what the lead story is. 
It seems like in addition to being very focused on creating places where people have great experiences, that you've also, as a company, made strategic investments in, in, in attracting some of the larger institutions that you've been successful in attracting there. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but early on, it seemed that you made some investments in the transportation infrastructure. Maybe there was some land donation involved, but it also seems that those investments really resulted in big returns. Do I get that correct? I think you are correct. I mean, we did some non-traditional, I mean, maybe traditional in that we came out here, we built an interchange and we built some roads and that. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of traditional. I think the non-traditional, you're right. There was land given and cash given to UCF and a couple of our other, you know, major anchors have had other incentives and that kind of thing associated with them. But really, we've been able to take a holistic view and look at the overall value enhancement and the overall sort of returns that we would generate versus the one specific thing. And I think that, again, backed by Mr. Lewis and not having to be in a single category. I mean, I think one of the things that's kind of tough in our industry, in my view right now, is that there's a lot of specialization and there's a lot of like merchant building and there's not so much long-term ownership. So you have a lot of people that are doing apartments that, you know, maybe don't do hospitality and you have hospitality guys that don't do single family and you have, you know, single family guys that don't do retail. And so everybody's sort of specialized and then there's not a lot of long-term folks. And so I don't know how many times I talk about, oh, we're going to be in this long-term deal. It's going to be five to seven years. (laughs) I'm thinking, geez, that's not very long. Yeah. So we're able to go across property types and be long-term, and I think that's unique. Now, we're that here in Orlando. You know, we're not trying to be that in 22 cities in the U.S. I mean, I think we're really focused on this campus here and this platform we have here and trying to connect those dots really along all those, you know, use types. Well, speaking about that, it seems like a number of your projects and like Nona in particular, you would say are... I guess we'd call mixed-use or multi-use, and mixed-use or multi-use projects can command premiums in the marketplace. I know in some of the research that we did, we found you know, just on the residential side that you were getting about a 20% premium you know, relative to communities around you, which is pretty significant, so showing that the investments that you made seem to be paying off. But these also tend to be more complicated projects, but it seems like you are doing this mix of uses in order to get that premium what have you learned from doing multi-use things and are you getting the premiums that you're looking for? And and what are the questions that you're still focused on figuring out? Yes. We believe that there's value in these mixed-use projects. I believe there's less people doing them. They are complicated and they are a bit, I believe, longer term in nature because they are more complicated. And you definitely need a strong company with leadership and vision behind it because the last thing you want is your users to discount the mixed uses by fear that they're not going to be well executed. You want the reverse, them to give a premium to individual use because they believe it's going to be stronger together. So, you know, it takes a certain story and discipline and, you know, and again, confidence to be able to execute on that. We are getting premiums and, you know, we've gone into other markets and generated premiums in some smaller but similar projects. I think the questions we ask ourselves, and I'm hoping that we can do a better job at in the future, especially as we get a little more digitally savvy, is to be able to dissect those pieces and understand better where do those exact premiums come from. We know there's premiums, 
but we don't exactly know the ingredients or the mixes exactly of what drives the components of the premiums. Yeah. And so I think trying to figure out how we could better dissect that would be interesting. And some of it does cost more too. So we get premiums, but you know, we spend a little more money and spend a little more time. And so I think a better dissection of the premium and trying to understand the quantities and the individual components would be useful. Those are great questions. I remember at RCLCO's Master Plan Community University, which Lake Nona hosted, which was a great experience. And we had a good conversation with you about innovation. And the, you know, the fact that while there's some interesting innovation occurring in our industry, there's also a lot of commodity development out there, sort of the opposite of mixed use or premium creation. It seems that being innovative is part of the culture at Tavistock. And I'm wondering what you could share with, you know, how do you foster that? You know, is that still paying off for the organization? We think it's something that defines us and is a part of our culture. I got to tell you, though, it's hard. It's something that you got to work at every day. And I think that, first of all, when we talk about innovation, I want to be clear and not overstate to some degree, you know, what we do a lot is incremental innovation, meaning we make things that are better, but not completely breakthrough innovation, which is a completely new solution. I think we have some of those, but a lot of times we're focusing on how to do what we're doing materially better and how to keep getting better at what we do. And that's something that I think comes from our owner down. He's always pushing the bar and I am too. And, you know, there's a lot of us that are perfectionists, I guess, if you will. We're always shooting for perfection. And But I think we're realistic. We also recognize that we never really achieve perfection, but you got to sort of shoot for it. And each time we do a project, we try to learn and try to do something, you know, better the next time. But I think innovation in creating new things is what helps differentiate us from those commodity things. And I also think that it also allows us by virtue of offering something different, to not be able to be shopped, I guess, in the same manner. I'm meaning that, you know, if you have a commodity product and everything's the same, you can kind of check your prices against everybody else. But if you're offering something that's truly unique and you're offering this bundle of things that nobody else has, it's hard to say with confidence, like, oh, it should be X amount per square foot because this person has the same thing. You know, nobody does. So it allows you some pricing power in your in what it is that you're selling because it's not a commodity. Yeah, there's, that, of, there's really two aspects of that, right? There's the pricing power aspect of premium, and then there's also the market share. Right. Agreed. So are, and, you, are you eliminating some competition by doing something unique where you can't be shopped? Is as much about market share as price, I would think. Right. Agreed. And so, you know, we have... I think examples of both. I think that, you know, some of the pricing that we've been able to achieve has demonstrated that we have some pricing power. And then I think some of the unique deals that we were able to achieve also show that we have a unique offering, you know, that our client base is seeking uh, on the market share. I mean, USTA, I mean, they looked at a bunch of different cities before coming here to Lake Nona. KPMG, same thing. They looked at a bunch of different cities before, you know, coming to Lake Nona. And, you know, I sort of think a lot about KPMG and that, I mean, they're run by accountants and lawyers, right? So they're a bunch of really smart people. And they came to us 
and we ended up getting a very attractive land price, but they bought into the whole thing that we were offering as an innovative community and a culture of collaboration and, you know, a unique focus on design and, you know, all of these things that they ended up valuing that separated us from some of the competition that admittedly was lower price. So you guys looked at each other and said, hey, our premium strategy is working. We are creating value here and the market is seeing it and rewarding us. Right. But it's something, again, we always want to be better. And so we want to make sure that the things that we think are adding, you know, the premium our customers also think. And, you know, you've helped us on some of this and dissecting some of these elements and and looking at our offerings and actually and also, you know, helping us out uh, initially with some of our survey work and other things. We do, you know, annual surveys of our residents and we ask them a bunch of questions. And, you know, that's how you find out what people want, right? You ask them. Um, it's important to listen de- sometimes, right? Yeah, and then you try to listen sometimes, right? But, <laughs> you know, I think we need to do more of that. We need to continue doing that. And I mean, there's no question just, you know, I think real estate, for so many things that we do, we're still a little bit behind the times in some of our information that we receive, you know, how deep we are in digital and, you know, and how transparent we are. And, you know, some of these things, I think all those things are progressing and we'd like to think we're leading in some of that stuff. but we're not a leading industry in real estate in some of those things. And I think part of it is because the capital requirements are fairly high and it's difficult to get a banker to, or whatever, insert name, but the banker investor to agree to do something dramatically different when what they're doing works just fine, you know? Well, along those lines of innovation, earlier in our conversation today, you mentioned the public art that you're doing and it reminded me of visiting Country Club Plaza in Kansas City years ago. And I was very impressed by their use of public art as a component of creating uh, placemaking. And, and you just don't see that in very many contemporary real estate projects. So I've been impressed by the public art that you're putting into, like Nona, you mentioned the glass house a few minutes ago. And you've got that, I think it's 35 foot tall, giant chrome plated dog in the town center, yeah. uh, which is pretty yeah. cool. So talk to us a minute about about your public art strategy, how that come about, why you decided to do it, what kind of results you're getting out of it or hope to get out of it. Yeah. So again, from our owner, uh, who is a major collector of, of art and operates at a whole different level than anyone else I know, he's had a dedication to art and hasn't had an interest in art for his whole life. And, you know, like what I mentioned earlier with our commitment towards education. I mean, I think we have a commitment towards art and advancing art in in our project. And and I think this public art is a interesting way to do that. I think there's so many benefits. Public art, you know, drives a sense of permanency in a community and drives a sense of ownership and I think drives a sense of pleasure and it does a lot of things, you know, and it doesn't have to be expensive. I think that's one of the things. We're doing some art here from little things. You know, we had this cool like wing exhibit that was painted on a building that, you know, was under construction. We've done, you know, bigger things. The dog was kind of a was a fun one. Um which it's now been named Disco, by the way. So um we had a community oh, cool. <laughs> naming contest and so it was it was named Disco, but it sort of started from us saying, Hey, when we build an office building, we wanna re- make sure we put some public art out as a function Mm -hmm. of that, you know, building. And and we've done that now a few times. So 
my thing is, you know, it drives pleasure in people. It's kind of, again, it's like music. You know, when you listen to music, most people are happy. <laughs> you know? I mean, there's all different kinds of music and different strokes yeah. for different folks and all that. But, you know, I mean, you, people enjoy that. And I think public art is like that. I mean, people enjoy it. And I think we want to continue to drive that. And I guess my only message on it is that big or small, you can do a lot of things and it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, we, we've done stuff with local artists. You know, we've done things on trade, you know, we've, we've done all kinds of different things to make stuff happen. And, and every little piece is a part of the sum and creates a greater whole. So we're going to keep doing that. And I'm excited about it. It's one of those things that I think drives the place. All right. And so it's part of what you were talking about earlier in terms of how you create the experience and makes it a unique, harder to compare place. Not a lot of communities have that as part of their placemaking strategy. Right. But a lot of cities do. So, you know, we think about those places, you know, whether it, you know, be the bean in Chicago or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. I mean, there's all kinds of things out there and it elevates things to a different level. Mm -hmm. Something else that I see you've done is innovative. Also in the town center, if you think about it, Lake Nona is very much of a greenfield sort of on, on the edge of Orlando somewhat. And yet with your town center, you went in and did some fairly high density early on. You built your office building, you put in a parking deck, you could have surface parked it, and you've done some apartments right there near the town center that are, I think you'd describe as more urban, and and you seem to be getting the more urban rents than what somebody might have thought would be rents you would get out there initially. So how is that working out and going higher density early? Is that paying off, and would you do that again? Yes, it is paying off now. We've been in a good economy, right? So, you know, sometimes when you do things right, you don't exactly know what the piece of it was. You know, you always know when you do things wrong, you know, like what, right. what, what, what the market what went wrong pretty sometimes, quick. <laughs> right. When, right. Sometimes when things go right, you know, it's hard to know exactly why. But I think for us, first of all, we think that the mix of uses is important. And we think some level of density is important in driving what we call this neo-urban place. And Mm -hmm. so for us, it's not about, and it could have been, I mean, Lake Nona could have been developed out long ago by just as being another edge, you know, housing, single, you know, land use, primary housing, you know, development and been done. And that wasn't what we wanted to achieve. We wanted to achieve something special here. And fortunately, again, with our owner, we were able to take a longer term view. But the mix of uses, I think, is important. And having some sort of density that's not, it's not a downtown CBD density, but it's enough density that you get this sort of uh, collision of uses and, and walkability and, you know, some like spaces that are created in the urban form and all that that is interesting. And so we've done a couple of things. We have done structured parking. I tried to, and I could get nerdy on this, but I really tried to focus on creating a good parking experience in a structured parking environment because I felt like our customer maybe didn't really want structured parking. I mean, in terms of like the retail customer that's popping in for, you know, a quick bite somewhere, do they really want to go into a parking garage? And I've tried to take a negative, which is a perception, like, do I really want to go in this parking garage and turn it into a positive by making a great parking garage? So we've tried to focus on, you know, 
high floor to floor heights with great light, you know, with the open, you know, ground floor with speed ramps. So you can drive right to your level, you know, with solid floor plates. So when you open your door, it doesn't smack into the next guy because of the slope. You know, we tried to create a really well-designed parking garage to, so that now somebody says, well, geez, I'd like to park in the parking garage because A, I can get closer to where I want to go. B, I'm in the shade, so I don't have to, you know, worry about the sun and or the rain or whatever it might be. And I feel safe and secure. So anyway, so Parking has been important. We're going to continue to do parking garages. We're going to continue to figure out how that how that works. You know, you mentioned the comment about, you know, the multifamily. Mm-hmm. We did a multifamily project here called Landon House, and we underwrote that at a, what I would say was a non-market return on our pro forma. We thought, okay, well, we're going to go in at this really fairly low return on cost, but we know over time, you know, it's going to make sense because we're building the town center and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turned out we were too conservative and we actually were able to achieve what I think was a good market rate return for that apartment project. And we delivered density at a time when people were rightly saying, are you sure you can deliver density and get rents, you know, similar to downtown out here at Lake Nona? We have been able to achieve that. Now, Part of it is the market strong, part of it is supply and demand, but part of it is also this idea of, you know, we have this urban place, you know, we have this amazing courtyard with amazing amenities in it. You know, you can walk across the street to our container park and there's entertainment and there's food and beverage and there's this, all this. So we sort of built, you know, the urbanity sort of around it. So anyway, we have been able to achieve premiums because of that density, but as everything, it's a mix of ingredients that I'm sure are driving that. You mentioned uh, your container park. So Boxy Park is right there in the town center. You you have a couple of restaurants you've got in there pretty early on. And, and now you have this really cool kind of hip container park added to that. How, how's that working out and how did that come about? So a couple things. One is, and you and I have talked about this before in another context, but when we're selling lots or whatever to builders, you know, the builders oftentimes say, oh, gosh, why are you bringing in another builder, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but usually when we do that, the total sales go up. And that's what happened with the restaurants. We had a couple of restaurants out here. They were doing okay, but not great. You know, it was early on. And as we've added more and more, all of them have done better. And so with the boxy, so, you know, we added first this well, we had our restaurant called Chroma. We have another place, Bosphorus. It's a Turkish place. We added a, a brewery and a pizza place called Park Pizza. And then we did this thing called Boxy, which are these containers. You know, each time we added something, we, like I said, increased everybody's sales, which is kind of interesting because it really just provided more choices. And Boxy was really meant to be something that was going to be temporary and really was going to allow us to experiment with some different concepts and, you know, and I'll go into that for a minute, which as a sideline, Mr. Lewis started in the restaurant business and then became a currency trader. And so he has long-term, you know, roots in the restaurant business. His son, Charlie, is the CEO of our restaurant group. And so we have a unique opportunity as a developer to also operate some of the restaurants that we have in our portfolio. And so we don't operate them all, but we do operate some. And I think that's been unique in our ability to sort of drive this place and populate it with these food and beverage outlets. And so with Boxy, we talked to our brothers over at, you know, Tavistock Restaurant Group and said, hey, you know, we want to do this. And they actually ran with the ball and 
and we co-developed it with them and they're operating it. And the idea was that ultimately we were going to be able to come in with some new concepts, rotate out, you know, the cuisine, do some pop-ups, do some different things, drive, you know, some music events and outdoor things. We have volleyball courts there. We have, you know, a little dog park area. We have, you know, places for families to hang out. And it's been a fun project. I think it got a little more permanent than I had originally intended it to to be. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> One of those. It is things. cool. I mean, it does bring it's a cool true. factor to the town center because you've got the nice, you know, the formal buildings and the formal sit down restaurants. And then right. you have this kind of funkier, you know, hip place with an outdoor stage and right. and all that. And uh, there's a lot of energy there. There's a lot of energy. But, you know, so originally I had this vision that, you know, we're going to get these we're going to get these containers. We're going to pop them down on the ground, set them on the ground. You know, we're going to run, you know, utilities on the surface like they do in the ferry, you know, where you have those little things that you step right. over, you know. No, we buried everything underground. You know, all of these things are on foundations. You know, of course, we had all the ADA things with accessibility and all that stuff. And I mean, it ended up costing, you know, a lot more than we had planned. Having said that, it's been very successful and well-received. And we're super excited about it. And actually, we've taken it to another level where we're going to open this test kitchen and have this idea about this kind of black box restaurant and test kitchen where some of our Tavistock restaurant guys are going to be doing R&D and that kind of thing. But then also we can bring in some guest chefs and run them into this test kitchen. And this is going to be our higher end experience where we're going to be doing, you know, different types of cuisine in this black box kind of restaurant. But then we're also going to be developing new concepts that might go out and go into Boxy and take one of the boxes and be, you know, a new, you know, Asian concept or whatever that's launched in the test kitchen that then gets rolled out into Boxy, which then could go from there into some actual physical space. We're now working on this inside food and beverage sort of brewery hall, et cetera, that will be, you know, maybe some shops within a shop sort of concept. So like, it's not just a kiosk or a container that you walk up to, it actually would be a seating area within a bigger structure. And so we could then take people and put them in there and then maybe actually go to a full, you know, more traditional sticks and bricks restaurant. So we're trying to develop you know, the food culture more and drive, you know, innovation and food here across all different price points and kind of be inclusive in that, you know. So we want to have you come here if you're just with your kids and you want to get something quick or, you know, you're on a special event with your significant other, you know, we want you to think about us for food. And, you know, there's a lot of restaurants in Orlando. And so there are a lot. We're starting to try to build a more focused concentration here, you know, in one place. The challenge sometimes when you're when you're creating a town center like like you are is sort of the staging and the and the phasing of it and and I think everyone you'll see is just this this would be a great amenity to the other real estate that we're selling and will add value to that but then also is it an investment are we going to lose money on it can we make money at it where do you see that line or where is that line with these kinds of projects for you between being an amenity that adds value to other real estate and being you know businesses that are that are profitable as well. A good friend of mine told me once that lost leaders lead to losses. (laughs) (laughs) I want to make sure I said that properly. We try not to do that. Now, I will say we take lesser returns on things that we think have synergistic value. 
So I'm not trying to say if I'm going to go build Boxy and that's my business plan, I'm going to go build Boxy and I'm going to open up in 22 locations across the U.S. that I'm going to take the same returns as I would here in Lake Nona because here in Lake Nona, with a return, I can justify some of it because of these other things it's driving. But we try not to take no return. You know, I think trying to take no return is not a sustainable plan. Trying to take a lesser return is, you know, I can justify that. So that's what we try to do. I think we've been happy with what we've generated, you know, out of Boxy, and we've been happy with the performance, you know, that we're seeing here in our lease rates and, and the way that our restaurants are, are going. You know, as we go forward into the town center, it's no news to you or anybody that's listening that, you know, the retail industry is in a state of flux. You know, we've talked earlier about commodity and the idea of commodity products versus maybe experiential products. And, you know, I think for us, our town center is more about experience and it's going to be more about those type of uh, vendors or tenants that value experience. And so there's ones that, you know, come to mind that, you know, maybe are more experiential than not. The other thing, I think we're going to also focus on food and beverage again and entertainment venues and that. So we have a movie theater and we're going to be doing some bowling and a comedy club and some of those things. So it's not your traditional outdoor mall, I guess, if you will, in soft goods where we're going to have, you know, 50 different, you know, soft good retailers. Sure, there's going to be soft goods, but, you know, there's going to be a good mix of things. And, you know, more now maybe towards the deal and deal structuring. I mean, for us, we're really interested in soliciting tenants that will reward us with the upside of their success and be aligned with us. So, we are happy to do, you know, percentage rent deals and we want to be aligned with our tenant. And so I think in the industry a bit are gone are those super high fixed rent deals long term. I mean, those are partly gone. We partly don't really want that anyways. We want to sort of be focused on, you know, an alignment and a reward on the upside. So some of our deals are being structured as, you know, percentage rent deals. We think that can bring in some different types of tenants that can allow us to, you know, get the right mix and not be too focused on de-risking everything through long-term fixed rate leases up front. It would seem that in addition to giving the restaurants or the retailers a little flexibility by doing percentage rents and then participating in the upside, that you're also allowing for a little bit of experimentation or giving yourself some flexibility there as well. Is that reflected in, in the leases that you do so that you know, if something's not working out, then you have the option to you know, be flexible and change that out? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's not good for anybody if you have somebody that for one reason or another is not performing, right? It's not good for the customer and not good for the retailer and it's not good for the landlord. And so, you know, I think we want to remain somewhat nimble. Now, it's a portfolio, right? So, I mean, you have some guys that are longer term, some guys that are shorter term, you know, different, you know, it's so it's a portfolio approach, bigger, smaller, whatever. But I think generally our move is towards more shorter term percentage rent type structures to make sure there is an alignment and that we are dealing with, you know, the good, solid, fresh, successful tenants. And so, you know, it's kind of one of those things like back to the future. I mean, it, that used to be the way that, you know, sort of malls and mall ownership was, you know, it was very much in, in overseas. It's a lot of like franchise things, right? Where the landlord actually operates the stores, you know? So for us, I think it's a mix of things and we're trying to align. And like you said, yes, we're trying to make sure we maintain some flexibility as we move forward. And like, again, so many things, 
there's many phases to this project. I mean, we're not trying to come out and, you know, plop down a couple million square feet of space. Our next phase of, of the town center, you know, it's several hundred thousand feet of office, first of all. And so we're, we are building office and we're leasing office and we, we have some good pipeline of office prospects. It's entertainment, you know, and it's retail and it's a mix of those things. And hotel, I forgot exactly. the hotel. We're, we're building the big hotel right in the center. And so um, we're excited about that. It's our, our town center hotel. It's, it's going to be have a cool vibe and, you know, have a great, you know, rooftop pool bar. And so we're very excited about this next phase. We talk a lot about sustainability in, in our business, and it seems like you're creating uses that, you know, although you, you look at each use and say, you know, can this be successful here on its own? It seems like there's a lot of synergy between the uses. So for example, with the the job center you're creating there, that obviously creates a lot of demand for the residential. You put in a hotel and it's successful as a hotel, but it also then serves as an amenity to help you attract the commercial tenants, the the office space and, and so on. That seems like that's part of your strategy. For sure. And that's, you know, kind of what we were talking about earlier about the value of mix of uses, right? It's going to be interesting. I mean, just whatever. There's all kinds of little sideline things, but, you know, parking is an interesting one for us. You know, we expect to see some reductions in parking, obviously, through mixed use. And I know you guys have done some studies and that kind of, you know, thing around that. And so we expect to see that. And then we also know, of course, that people are owning less vehicles. And we have all this, you know, with Uber and Lyft and potentially autonomous vehicles, which we're getting ready to launch some autonomous vehicles here in in Lake Nona. But we hear about these parking demand, you know, decreases, but, you know, for the most part, a lot of our office guys are talking about, you know, wanting more parking and their view a lot is, I mean, sometimes they're coming from places where they had parking constraints and they had employees that were struggling with where to park or high cost of parking or inconvenience of parking. So part of it is that. And then part of it is that, you know, sort of continued densification of space where, you know, we're getting more people per square foot or we're turning over more people, you know, in office space. And so parking is going to be an interesting one to see how that plays out here. You know, a lot of the long-term indicators are, hey, we should be building less parking garages. Having said that, for us, parking is still something that, you know, people expect in quantity and uh, has been one of our competitive advantages on the office side. I want to shift gears just for a second before uh, before we ran out of time, because You've obviously had a very successful career. You continue to have a successful career. You've got the opportunity to work on some really cool stuff. And there are a lot of uh, younger people in our industry who are coming along and thinking, you know, I'd kind of like to do that. What kind of advice would you give someone who maybe is uh, coming into a leadership position for the first time in the real estate field in terms of resources that were beneficial to you or Uh, or insights that you gained as a leader that might be advice you would give them? I would say I was lucky early on in my career and that I was able to um, sort of speed date some mistakes. You know, it's I don't want to make a stereotype, but one of the challenges with young people today is I think there's a lot of pressure on them to know everything. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of competition with, I mean, how many people are coming out of school already with an MBA under their belt, you know, or whatever. Um, and an undergraduate degree is perceived to not be even enough sometimes in this competitive, you know, world. Hopefully they can go to a place where they can make mistakes and be comfortable to learn more. 
and think about it as a journey, not a destination. I think so many people are going for that title or that extra dollar or that and coming in, you know, in a position of leadership or control or this or that. I think like trying to treat it as you're always positioning yourself to learn more and to advance over time and think of it as a journey that way. Allow yourself to make mistakes. Try to hang out with people smarter than you. You know, you'll learn from them. Try to find a mentor. Try to find a learning group and think about it again as don't necessarily just choose the money. Choose what's going to make you better in the next, you know, in the next time that you're going to advance your career. And I think, you know, I was fortunate that I was able to look at it in that way and not really focus on the money. I sort of focused on how am I going to learn the most? How am I going to be in a spot where I can make a mistake and not get my head chopped off? And that allowed me to learn. And so I think that the people really matter. And, you know, this is said all the time, but I think probably one of the learning experiences for me more recent is how important it is to hire the best people and be around the best people. Again, we talk a lot about it. You know, we're doing things that are unique and we're doing some things that haven't been done before. And so I try to always hire people that are smarter than me. I'm, I'm happy if I'm the dumbest guy in the room. <laughs> I doubt that, but it sounds like a good strategy of surrounding yourself with other smart people. And, and I think I heard you say also that, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to uh, empower them, giving them room to make mistakes. And Yeah, it's hard to do, right? Because, you know, nobody wants to make a mistake. But, you know, I think for me, I try to really, I think if people own it, I'm happy. You know, if it's a bad outcome, but you own it, that's better for me than it makes me frustrated when I'm trying to find out, you know, what really happened. But I usually am not frustrated about, I'm not really frustrated about the outcome because people, I believe that people show up, generally they show up for work every day to give their best self. And so, so we're all trying to do that. So how do we get, you know, best organized to achieve that? And, and I think, you know, having a diverse group of, of smart people and, and a great communication platform is key. You know, we've done some things here, like going to open office. That's been really interesting for me. Um, I do think it's added to our level of collaboration and and discussion and made us more efficient. And, you know, we're constantly um, growing and and trying to learn. And I think that's the sort of it. Try to learn every day. Very cool. That's good advice. Well, I want to thank you for being on the podcast with us today. It's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you. I feel like we covered a lot of subjects. And I really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg. I uh, I always enjoy speaking with you. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity and look forward to us continuing to work together in the future. Thank you. Me too. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.